support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today we're trying something a little new, a shorter episode really focused on one topic. We're very curious what you all think of this format, so please let us know. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com, or you can tweet at me. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. So today I'm talking to Jamil Jaffer, executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, about one of the hardest problems at the intersection of tech and policy, how to regulate social media platforms. Everyone seems to think we should do it. Democrats, Republicans, even Facebook is running ads saying it welcomes regulation. It's weird. But while everyone might agree on the idea, no one agrees on the execution. Broadly, the Democrats think platforms should moderate more aggressively, while the Republicans think the platform should moderate less aggressively. Everyone agrees the platform should be more transparent, but not about what. Should the algorithms be public? Should researchers have access to data about users? What about data privacy? That seems good, but those bills have been stalled out forever. And then there's the biggest obstacle of all, the First Amendment. Like everyone else, social media companies have a First Amendment right to free speech. And a lot of the proposals to regulate these companies kind of look like government speech regulations, and they run right into the First Amendment. In fact, this has happened twice in the past year. Both Texas and Florida passed state laws that would regulate big platforms, and both of those laws were ruled unconstitutional by courts and put on hold pending appeal. The Florida law was especially hilarious. It specifically excused any company that owned theme parks, which was an openly corrupt concession to Disney. It was very good. Jamil just co-authored a piece in the New York Times opinion section arguing that while these laws are bad and should be struck down, the arguments being made by the platform companies in those court cases go too far. They stretch the First Amendment into preventing any regulation at all, including things like privacy and transparency. Now, I thought that was just a fascinating line of argument coming from an organization dedicated to the First Amendment, so I asked Jamil on the show to talk it out. There isn't a lot of nuance in this debate, and I wanted to push on it a little bit. Before we start, I want to lay out some terms. This conversation got a little jargony, it was two lawyers talking to each other, so here are some definitions. The First Amendment, of course, says the government can't make laws interfering with the freedom of speech, with very few exceptions. But importantly, that only applies to the government. Platforms like Facebook can do whatever they want. That's a big difference that is often lost on the internet. I feel like it's important to lay it out every time I can. 
Jamil mentions a concept called viewpoint discrimination, which is when a speech regulation restricts a person or organization's speech based on their opinion or perspective. The First Amendment prohibits the government from doing that most of all. And the big social media companies, say the Florida and Texas laws, are inherently viewpoint discrimination because they were passed in open retaliation for the platforms banning President Trump. When Gmail says the lower courts, he means the federal district courts. Those are the first courts that heard the challenges to the Florida and Texas laws. Those cases are now being appealed up to the next level of federal courts, the Circuit Court of Appeals. Texas is in the Fifth Circuit. Florida is in the Eleventh. After that, you end up in the Supreme Court. Another concept we refer to is scrutiny, which are the levels of review courts apply to government regulations. The harshest one is strict scrutiny, which says a law should be narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest. Strict scrutiny is supposed to be reserved for laws affecting the most important constitutional rights. The social media companies say that free speech is so important that courts should use strict scrutiny when evaluating the Texas and Florida laws. It's hard to talk about social media regulation without talking about Section 230, which is the law that says platforms aren't liable for the things their users post. One of the most common myths about 230 is that it makes some sort of distinction between a platform and a publisher. That is not true. Repeat, that is not true. But it is easier to talk about changing 230 than it is to talk about changing the First Amendment. So we end up talking about 230 a lot. Last thing, we talk about the public square and common carriers. In the old days, public square literally meant the ability to speak freely in the town square or whatever. Today, since most of our speech takes place online, there's a big question about whether social media qualifies as a public square. It's a debate. Knight has been a major player in this debate. It won a case where it argued President Trump's Twitter account was a public forum under the First Amendment, and he wasn't allowed to block people on Twitter simply based on their views. Whether or not social media should be considered a common carrier is another debate. Common carriers are businesses that provide services to the public, like phone companies or airlines. They receive certain benefits and protections in exchange for an obligation not to discriminate against anyone. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has said he thinks the social media companies should be considered common carriers. That is a very complicated argument, but it's out there. Okay, that was a lot. Run it back if you need to. No one's judging. Okay, Jamil Jaffer, Executive Director of the Knight First Amendment Institute. Here we go. Jamil Jaffer, you're the executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you. You just wrote a piece in the New York Times opinion section about the various laws in Texas and Florida that would regulate social media companies, the arguments the companies are making against those laws. I want to talk about all that. We got to start at the basics. What is the Knight First Amendment Institute? We are uh, an institute based at Columbia University. We were established five years ago by Columbia and the Knight Foundation to focus on digital age free speech issues. And we do that through litigation, research, and public education. We brought you know, a number of lawsuits relating to social media and free speech. I think the one that's probably got the most attention is the suit that forced President Trump to stop blocking critics from his Twitter account. But uh, that is not the only case that we have, we have brought over the last few years, uh, just the most famous one. We've brought uh, you know, a number of other lawsuits relating to the intersection between new technology and especially new communications platforms and the First Amendment. Just in practice, is the primary product lawsuits and litigation? Is it research? 
What is the day-to-day of, of someone like you? Both of those things. So we have a litigation team, about a dozen lawyers who work solely on cases involving free speech and closely related values like privacy, especially, but not only in cases involving new technology. You know, we bring those cases ourselves, we litigate them in the courts, meaning we brief them, we argue them at all levels of uh, the federal court system. Many of our lawyers come from other public interest organizations. I was at the ACLU for 14 years before I came to Columbia. Some of my other colleagues were uh, at the ACLU or at Penn American Center or at other organizations that focus on, you know, free speech and privacy issues, uh, again, you know, especially in, in, in the context of new technology. And then we also have a research program. And through that program, we sponsor academic research, academic symposia uh, around the same set of issues. Both of those programs are pretty well developed. Public education is something that we have spent uh, less time focusing on over the last few years, but we're going to spend more time focusing on that this year and in the coming years. So you mentioned the sort of tangled relationship between social media and the First Amendment. If I had to make a prediction for 2022, it would be that this sort of energy and drive to regulate social media in this country will come to a series of moments, maybe two ahead. And we will have to somehow contend with whether the First Amendment allows the government to pass speech regulations, to pass content moderation standards or laws preventing racism on platforms, all these things. There are two laws in Texas and Florida. Courts have put them on hold due to First Amendment challenges. There are the endless hearings in Congress. Executive, the Congress loves to yell at tech executives. I don't know if that's going anywhere, but it keeps happening. There's the sort of dull roar of Section 230. All that seems like it's going to add up to, oh boy, what are the limits of the First Amendment? Right In the next year or so. It, it, that, that feels very real to me. It's already happening to some extent, right? Because some of these laws are now being challenged in the lower courts. The Florida law and the Texas law have both been challenged District court judges have already reached conclusions about those laws, and those cases are now, you know, going up. And I don't know if those are the cases that are going to lead to the Supreme Court showdown. You know, many things have to happen before that uh, takes place. But if it's not these laws, there'll be, you know, I think Wisconsin also has um, a law in the works. Other states are considering various kinds of regulation of the social media platforms. And, you know, as you mentioned, Congress is considering this as well. There are all sorts of ideas on the table and, you know, what those lawsuits will look like uh, in practice turns obviously on the details of the laws that are actually passed. But there's no question that uh, over the next year and, you know, a couple of years, uh, the courts are going to have to start grappling with, with, with those questions that you already alluded to, those questions about, you know, what does the First Amendment actually mean in this context? So your piece in the New York Times opinion section uh, was basically about the arguments that social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter through their various lobbying groups are making in the courts. Your argument is that they are somehow co-opting the First Amendment in their lawsuits. Explain that to me. The op-ed piece was based on a brief that we filed in the Florida case. And, you know, we, we found ourselves a little bit conflicted about these lawsuits because on the one hand, we agree with the companies that these laws are unconstitutional. 
maybe I should just say a little bit about what these laws do. I mean, these laws impose extensive transparency requirements on major platforms. They give users all kinds of rights with respect to content that's taken down or accounts that are taken down. The Florida law restricts platforms from deplatforming or shadow banning, which is not very well defined in the law, um, <laughs> political candidates or media organizations. The Texas law prohibits viewpoint discrimination. So they really are, you know, sort of very comprehensive regulations of the social media platforms. You know, they're extremely burdensome, uh, but more, more significantly for First Amendment purposes, both of the laws uh, are viewpoint discriminatory. And they're viewpoint discriminatory in the sense that they were enacted in retaliation for the platform's uh, editorial decisions. The platforms, you know, in the months preceding the enactment of these laws, the platforms, or some of them anyway, took down President Trump's accounts. They restricted access to reporting about Hunter Biden. They labeled vaccine misinformation as misinformation. And these laws were kind of payback for those decisions. What we said in our brief is that the fact that the laws were payback for those decisions is enough to doom them for constitutional purposes, that that alone should be sufficient to justify the courts throwing these laws out. But the arguments that the the platforms are making, that the social media companies are making, uh, actually go much further than that. They're not just saying that these laws are viewpoint discriminatory. They go on to make a number of arguments that if you accept them, would preempt not just these laws, not just the Florida and Texas laws, which may have all kinds of problems even beyond viewpoint discrimination, uh, but would preempt other laws too that wouldn't have those problems. So uh, just to be a little bit more specific, uh, the companies argue, for example, that the First Amendment entitles them to exactly the same protections that newspapers get under the First Amendment. Uh, they also argue that any law that burdens their editorial decision-making, uh, no matter how minimal the burden, should be subject to the most stringent constitutional review, maybe even regarded as per se unconstitutional. Um, and they argue that any law that targets larger platforms, that sort of draws a line between larger platforms and smaller platforms, should be subject to the most uh, serious constitutional scrutiny as well. And if you accept all of those arguments, yes, absolutely, the Florida and Texas laws will be struck down, as they should be. But it will also be almost impossible for legislatures, whether the state, at the state level or federal level, to pass much more modest laws that, for example, impose transparency, uh, reasonable transparency requirements on the companies, or afford users reasonable due process protections or even restrict what the companies can collect, what kind of information they can collect and how they can use that information. In other words, privacy laws. Uh, so if you accept the company's arguments, uh, it's not just the Texas and Florida laws that will be struck down, it's all these future laws too that are much more reasonable or that might be much more reasonable than the ones we're looking at right now. Do you think the audience for your piece was regular people reading it? Was it the judges who read the New York Times opinion section? Was it the, the bar as a whole? Part of it is um, e even among amongst the community that spends a lot of time thinking about the First Amendment and regulation of the platforms, there has been a kind of 
bifurcation in that community with people uh, gravitating towards these two poles that are represented in, the, in these cases by the platforms on one hand and by the state governments on the other. So you have the platforms arguing essentially a kind of all position, which is, you know, we have the same rights as newspapers and any law that would be unconstitutional with respect to newspapers must also be unconstitutional with respect to social media companies. That's a very broad understanding of the platform's own First Amendment rights. And on the other hand, you have these state governments, which have staked out a kind of none position, which is, you know, <laughs> the platforms have no First Amendment rights to speak of in this context. And whatever state governments want to do, they should be allowed to do. And uh, it seemed to me and to my colleagues at the Night Institute that this kind of bifurcation or this kind of polarization of this particular debate was is a real problem because the First Amendment doesn't leave us with only these two possibilities, this kind of all or nothing. You know, there are, there's a lot of space in between all or nothing. Like you could have a set of rules that restricted state governments from effectively uh, using social media regulation as a means of distorting political debate, but still allowed legislatures to impose reasonable privacy and transparency and due process uh, protections. Uh, like there is that kind of, you know, that, that middle ground. And the First Amendment, you know, shouldn't be understood to leave us with only these kind of two uh, extremely unappealing options. So that message, I think, was you know, in part for, pe for people in our own small community of lawyers and tech policy experts you know, who are thinking about these issues every day, but have sort of come to the, in our view, kind of wrong conclusion that there are only these two unappealing possibilities on the table. But also kind of more broadly, um, you know, it's an effort to, you know, I don't want to be sort of you know, too generous to our own writing, but but it's an effort to bring a degree of nuance to uh, a conversation that has sometimes, you know, maybe lacked nuance. But let me push you on nuance kind of specifically here. I was a lawyer for 20 minutes. I wasn't any good at it. But my instinct is, of course, the social media companies are arguing for a maximal interpretation of the First Amendment. That's what their lawyers are paid to do. I just read the piece and it felt strange to me to to say they were doing anything wrong. Like, of this is the argument. Mm -hmm. That's what lawyers are meant to do. You know, I guess that's uh, a fair point. Although I guess, you know, it's notable that some of these companies, Facebook in particular, but not only Facebook, uh, have been out there uh, saying to Congress that they want regulation. <laughs> Please regulate us. Yeah, you know, we, we want regulation. Uh, at the same time, they're going into these district courts around the country saying any regulation would be unconstitutional. So that seems like an important uh, thing to note. You know, even if it's not realistic to think that the companies are going to change their legal arguments, like e even if, you know, any reasonable person would expect financially motivated actors to make these kinds of uh, arguments, it seems important to me to ensure that other people aren't fooled when the platforms kind of wrap themselves in the First Amendment. You know, we, we shouldn't think that to support the First Amendment here necessarily means to support the platforms. Uh, you know, there, the, the First Amendment might be something quite different from what the platforms are saying it is and might be something quite different from what the state governments are saying it is. You know, there is this in-between space, and we just want to make clear that 
Being a champion of the First Amendment in this context doesn't necessarily mean lining up behind the social media companies. So that's a message not so much for the companies, but for, you know, others who are just trying to figure out what their, you know, what their views are on this on this topic. I think that's what I mean when I say it feels like things are going to come to a head in the next year or so. I would ordinarily assume that any First Amendment organization would similarly push for a maximal interpretation of the First Amendment in cases like this. And you're saying, no, there's a lot of nuance here. You know, first of all, I think that that phrase, a maximalist understanding of the First Amendment, is not a good way of understanding what's going on here, because there are actually a lot of different free speech actors in the mix here, right? The platforms are, are asserting free speech rights. They say, we are building an, exp- an expressive community. We should get to decide what our expressive community looks like. But the platform's users are also asserting free speech rights. They're saying, this is the new public square, and we have the right to participate in the new public square. Uh, and you know, we should be permitted to participate in that, in that kind of conversation without interference on the basis of, for example, viewpoint. And then governments are also asserting a kind of free speech interest here when they say, we need to protect the integrity of this public square. We need to make sure that this public square works for our democracy. We need to kind of harness public discourse for democratic ends. And all of those are kind of free speech arguments. And when you decide on what shape the First Amendment should take in this context, you have to take all of those interests into account, not just the company's interests. So I don't I don't think it's really a question of, you know, a maximalist understanding of the First Amendment versus a minimalist understanding of the First Amendment. It's really a question of, you know, what was the First Amendment really meant to protect? Like, what are the values that the First Amendment was meant to protect? And what shape do we need to give the First Amendment to ensure that it serves those values? And in my view, you know, the First Amendment was meant in large part to protect the process of self-government. And that means that it should... Uh, accommodate regulations that are intended uh, and and do actually protect or strengthen the process of self-government. But it shouldn't accommodate regulations that interfere with that process. Um, so regulations, for example, you know, which are effectively state efforts to enlist the platforms in certain kinds of censorship. You know, like the First Amendment shouldn't make room for those kinds of regulations, but it should make room for regulations that, you know, help all of us understand better what forces are shaping public discourse, you know, how the platforms, for example, are shaping public discourse through their editorial decisions. That seems like something that um, the First Amendment should be not unsympathetic to, so long as the regulations are kind of narrowly tailored and, uh, you know, drafted in a way that doesn't effectively give government actors the ability to kind of rig the game. Whether any particular regulation should survive the kind of First Amendment review I just described is going to be a hard question. And it's not going to be a kind of matter of, you know, just applying rules that we developed 50 years ago before anyone had even conceived of the Internet to this extremely different context. It's going to be going back to the values that animate the First Amendment and asking, again, you know, what kinds of rules do we need in place to give effect to those to those values? We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, this conversation is going to run right into Section 230. You knew it was coming. We'll be right back. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. 
Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. We're back with more from Jamil Jaffer. So what the key line that really jumped out to me from Rapid was, and I'll quote it, the First Amendment should apply differently to social media companies than it does to newspapers because social media companies and newspapers exercise editorial judgment in different ways. Mm-hmm. To me, this says, okay, there's, there's a test, right? If you're doing X kind of editorial judgment, you get newspaper protection. And if you're doing Y kind of editorial judgment, you get a lesser social media company protection. What's the line? I actually regret that particular phrasing. So this, this is what I actually meant to say, which is a, a, just a little bit different from what we did, in fact, say. What we meant to say is that it should matter how editorial discretion is exercised. It doesn't matter whether it's a platform exercising it or a newspaper exercising, but it should matter how editorial discretion is exercised. And here's a very sort of concrete uh, way of, of thinking about this. So when, when I and my co-author, Scott Wilkins, uh, submitted this op-ed to the New York Times, we traded drafts uh, with the Times three or four times. You know, they, they wrote back to us and said, why are you using this word here? Why are you using this phrase here? They had suggestions about the structure of the, the argument. Uh, they had suggestions about specific wording. They had questions about all of our claims. We went back and forth again several times. Then they sent to the copy editors who also had uh, comments on what we had written. Then they selected a title. And then they selected the placement of the op-ed on their website. And they made a decision about whether to have it in the newspaper as well. And when they decided to have it in the newspaper, they decided where to put it in the newspaper. And they decided whether to attach a photograph to it. And all of those decisions were made by editors uh, who were talking to one another about the kinds of things that we think about when we think about editorial judgment. Now, platforms don't do any of that. That doesn't mean platforms aren't engaged in editorial judgment as well. As we've been saying, you know, for the past 20 minutes, uh, platforms do engage in editorial judgment, but they exercise it in a very different way. Uh, They exercise it through content moderation decisions, through community standards. They implement it both through human decision makers and also through algorithmic ones. Can I just interrupt you? This sounds like you're saying there's a difference between a platform and a publisher. No. Which is, okay. uh, I mean, those are like loaded phrases in the Section 230 debate. But you can see how this, this mirrors that kind of argument, right? I don't, I'm not sure it, it does. Uh, let me just tell you what the argument is, and then you, know, you can decide whether it mirrors it or not. I mean, the, the argument is that just that these two kinds of editorial decision-making look different. That's it. And because they look different, uh, it's possible that any particular regulation that uh, would burden the editorial judgment of the New York Times might not burden the editorial judgment of Twitter or it might not burden it to the same extent. And uh, that seems important to me because otherwise, if the question we're gonna ask every time 
Congress tries to regulate the platforms is, could they do this to the New York Times? We're going to end up with no regulation at all, no due process regulation, no transparency regulation, because, of course, Congress can't say to the New York Times, uh, explain why you rejected this op-ed. Or, um, uh, you know, if you reject the op-ed, then you need to give the person who submitted it an opportunity uh, uh, to appeal the decision to the editor-in-chief. It would be ridiculous for Congress to even propose something like that. But it's not obvious at all to me that uh, we should react the same way to those kinds of regulations when they're proposed with respect to the platforms. And it's not just me you know, some of the platforms, too, uh, have not just invited that kind of regulation, but have already started to provide some of that transparency themselves. And if it were so offensive, you know, to the idea of editorial <laughs> discretion that platforms should be required to provide that kind of transparency, it's a little bit weird that they're providing a degree of that, you know, a degree of that kind of transparency already. So the, the only argument we were trying to make is that these two kinds of entities exercise editorial discretion in different ways, and that might matter to the constitutionality of any particular regulation. And that seems to me not just that it should be non-controversial, but that it has to be true. It cannot be the case that the First Amendment is indifferent to the the nature of the editorial decision-making. Uh, it just wouldn't make any sense, and it can't make sense of the fact that the platforms are transparent in ways that newspapers never are. Uh, like, that seems like an important, you know, I- an important fact to me. What I'd push you on, though, is, right, your argument says there's a set of actors that look like open access social media platforms, and there's a set of actors that look like the New York Times or The Verge or Wired Magazine or whatever, and they're mm-hmm. different. What do you think is the They're doing the different line? things, yeah. What is, what is the line? How, do you, how would you define that such that anybody could understand it? Like, uh, we have a comment section. The New York Times has a comment section, right? That looks more like Facebook than not. Yes, yes. And that, that's why I don't think the line should be between newspapers and social media companies. The mm-hmm. line should be drawn on the basis of the kind of editorial judgment that is being exercised in that particular context. So if the New York Times has a comment section, as it does, you know, the New York Times looks a little bit more like a social media company. I mean, that's, you know, in that particular context, what the Times is doing is something, you know, much more akin to what Facebook does in, in its main business. And uh, so I wouldn't draw the line between newspapers and social media companies. I would draw it on the basis of the function. You know, what function uh, is the entity uh, engaged in in that particular context? Now, you might still ask the same question. Well, how are you going to draw the lines based on function? I think the only way to answer that question is on a kind of case-by-case, like, you know, that's what that's what courts do. They draw those kinds of lines on the basis of case, you know, case-by-case decision-making. And this is not a novel kind of proposition, like even on this question of which entities are exercising editorial judgment. There's a long line of Supreme Court cases in which the court has uh, given content to that phrase, editorial judgment, through case-by-case decision-making. So, you know, there was a, a 1974 case, Miami Herald versus Tornillo, in which the court said that this newspaper is exercising editorial judgment. And then there was a case four years later, I'm not sure if I'm getting the years exactly right, but four years later, uh, in which uh, the court said that uh, a utility was exercising uh, editorial judgment when it decided not to include or to include certain content in the envelopes that it sent to its subscribers. And then a parade organizer 
a decade later or a couple of decades later, the court said, was exercising editorial judgment in deciding who can be part of the parade or not. So that's kind of just case-by-case decision-making to figure out who is exercising editorial judgment. And the same kind of case-by-case decision-making you could have with respect to what kinds of burdens on editorial judgment are constitutionally permissible. And, you know, the only argument I'm making here is that what kinds of burdens are constitutionally permissible might turn on whether you're regulating a parade or a utility or a newspaper engaged in traditional newspaper activities or a social media company engaged in traditional social media activities. And that seems to me that it's got to be, you know, it's got to be right. I feel you on that. I just, I'm looking at the attempts at definitions sort of across the whole policy landscape. And those attempts at definitions keep crashing into the rocks, right? The FTC tries to sue Facebook for being a monopoly social media provider. They cannot even define the market that Facebook, Facebook operates in such that their lawsuit failed. Like they, they failed on the first cut, which is what is the market for Facebook services. I'm looking at the Florida and Texas laws, Florida famously extremely corrupt definition, excluding people who own a theme park. So Disney would not be hit by this law, right? Like even on the first cut of what is a social media company, the government seems to be flailing. That's true. But you do not have to be a particularly sophisticated First Amendment <laughs> expert to understand that that Disney definition was not going to fly. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, th- these to some extent, the bad definitions are uh, a reflection of bad motivations. Um, <laughs> But, you know, there are seri- more se- what I think of as more serious efforts, uh, especially at the federal level. There is a draft bill that Senators Coons, Portman and Klobuchar issued last week that uh, deals almost entirely with transparency issues. And, you know, it would require the platforms to share certain kinds of data with researchers. It would provide a kind of safe harbor for journalists and researchers who study the platforms. And in my view, it's very, very carefully done. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that it couldn't be improved. I'm sure that there are tweaks that could be made that would make it stronger, both as a matter of kind of effectiveness and as a matter of uh, standing up to First Amendment challenge. But to me, that seems like a very serious effort at drafting regulation that would strengthen democratic values online and shouldn't be understood as an affront to the First Amendment. So it may be that the first wave of these laws, like the Florida and Texas laws, just doesn't go anywhere for good reasons. But I don't think we should take that to mean that, you know, no regulation is possible here or no regulation is uh, likely to survive First Amendment scrutiny. There's another view in the tech industry that I actually hear quite a bit, and it's surprising to me, especially because, as you say, their their lawyers are in court arguing for these very expansive First Amendment interpretations. But the other view is, boy, the First Amendment is annoying. I wish the United States would be more like Germany and just write a speech code and Mm -hmm. say Nazis are illegal. And here's some speech that's illegal and write the content moderation standards for us because us trying to do it is an endless pain point and I am Mark Zuckerberg. I'm tired of it. And I'm going to rename my company to meta and do metaverse stuff instead of thinking about speech regulation at scale, which is an impossible problem. That is, I mean, it's a more common view than I ever expected. 
And it, it seems like, yep, that is actually potentially a good answer. Do you think there's a way, by the way, I think that's a horrible answer, but I, I hear it a lot. Do you think there's a way for the United States to actually do something like that for this set of companies, if you can define them? Do something like that, meaning uh, impose a kind of speech code? Yep. No, no. I, okay. I think that um, I don't see the First Amendment as an obstacle to good ideas in this space, but it mm-hmm. is an obstacle to some bad ideas. And I would put that one, you know, on my list of bad ideas. I mean, anybody who's actually, who actually finds this proposal appealing, I think should just think about how that power, how that power would have been used had the last administration uh, had it. You know, if President Trump had had the power to define, for example, vaccine misinformation, you know, how, how would President Trump have defined that phrase? And what would the speech code have looked like for the platforms? I, I suspect that, you know, the people who think that the imposition of a speech code uh, would solve our, our, our problems here maybe haven't thought very deeply about, you know, what that speech code would actually look like and who would get to write it and who would get to enforce it. I think uh, on this particular point, we're very lucky to have the First Amendment because it protects us from exactly that so-called you know, solution to, to the problem. But I don't think the First Amendment, you know, and obviously the, the companies disagree with me on this point, but, but I don't think the First Amendment is an obstacle to the kinds of regulations that actually make sense, that would actually do something to you know, address real problems you know, I keep going back to transparency and privacy and due process, but there are others as well, like interoperability, for example. Like if Congress wanted to do something on interoperability that gave uh, developers the right to build on top of uh, digital infrastructure that the big technology companies have created, uh, I don't think the First Amendment would be an obstacle to that. And that might actually do a lot to address issues uh, relating to monopoly power. And privacy law, same thing, you know, creating privacy protections that limited what the companies can collect and how they can use that information would have, you know, a direct impact, obviously, on privacy, but also on the quality of our speech environment, because it's all that data that feeds micro-targeting or nano-targeting of, of, of messages that often contain misinformation. So I think through the kinds of, you know, non-viewpoint discriminatory proposals that, you know, we, we have now mentioned several times over the last half hour, you know, Congress could actually improve our speech environment in uh, very significant ways without generating, you know, serious First Amendment issues. I want to end on kind of a, a big idea. You started by saying these are new public squares. The users of these platforms have an interest too. I feel that. I I think most people in America are more often touched by YouTube's content moderation policies than any state or federal law. Like it's just, it's real. Mm-hmm. More people are aware of YouTube copyright strikes than maybe even the speed limit around them, right? Like it's just the platforms and their rules are in your face all the time as you use the internet. There is a movement, I think Clarence Thomas has given a speech about this saying, we should just call them common carriers. We should use this other language yeah. from telecom law and say, okay, we're, we're, we're just leaving the first amendment entirely. And we're going to start regulating these like utilities, like the phone company or something like that. We're also talking in the context of, you know, Supreme court argument that seems poised to flip 50 years of Roe v. Wade precedent. Like this court is, it, it seems 
more willing to say, okay, we can leave some precedent behind. A lot of the First Amendment precedent that we're talking about is really only 70 years old. Like the, the notion of strict judicial scrutiny is 70 years old. Or less, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just seems like there's also activity for another method here of thinking about how to regulate these platforms. It almost has nothing to do with the First Amendment, escapes it entirely, but might lead to significant other kinds of consequences. Do you see that as a danger? Do you see that as an opportunity? How, how would you think about that? You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem obvious to me that this would avoid First Amendment issues. I, I think it would just generate its own set of First Amendment challenges because the platforms would argue that they are not, in fact, common carriers. They have never held themselves out to all comers in the way that, you know, common carriers are usually thought to do. To the contrary, the platforms all have community standards or something, you know, akin to community standards, and they all have content moderation policy. And that makes them look very different from, you know, AT&T, right, which really is open to all comers. Now, there's a certain kind of historical circularity to that argument, but the fact remains that these platforms do, in fact, exercise a great deal of uh, editorial discretion. Uh, in fact, that's what a lot of people are complaining about, is that they are exercising editorial <laughs> discretion. But the fact that they're exercising editorial discretion makes them look different from uh, railways and, you know, the the, the telecoms. So I, I'm not sure how far that argument goes as a matter of kind of legal doctrine or kind of common sense. But you're right that Justice Thomas expressed some enthusiasm for it in that concurrence in in the Trump Twitter case. And a couple of appell appeals court judges have also expressed some enthusiasm for it. And the states, Florida and Texas, are both to some extent relying on the common carrier argument. You might end up distinguishing, and this is something that Eugene Volokh, who is a, you know, a, a legal scholar who's sometimes you know, associated with libertarianism or thought to be thought to be a libertarian. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not suggesting he's not, but, um, you know, he has this argument that hosting is to the extent the, the social media platforms are just hosting, they can be characterized as common carriers. Not obvious to me that that distinction is actually a workable one. Can you actually draw a line between hosting and everything else that the platforms do seems complicated to me. But maybe conceptually, there's some value in distinguishing these two functions. I don't know. But I, I don't think that, you know, just asserting that the platforms are common carriers is going to get us out of the First Amendment world. To the contrary, it's just going to raise another set of First Amendment questions. As somebody who has covered uh, net neutrality for going on 10 years, I have to say just the phrase common carrier it just like, <laughs> lights my brain on fire. Uh, you've given us so much time. Where do you think this goes next? What, what should people be looking for over the course of the next year? Well, there are, there are going to be these two appeals court arguments and decisions over the next few months. Like the Florida uh, case is first. Uh, so the 11th Circuit is going to hear this case early next year. And then the 5th Circuit in the Texas case will hear that case, if not in the spring, then I think you know early in the summer. And entirely conceivable that one of those cases goes up to the Supreme Court. But even if they don't go to the Supreme Court, I think those decisions will end up shaping the legislative debate, both at the state level and the federal level, you know, over the next year or two. Because 
those courts, the Fifth and Eleventh Circuits, are going to start to sketch out what the First Amendment means in this particular context. And legislatures will then have to take into account the limits that those courts have put in place, which is why we filed the brief we did in the Florida case. We really want to make sure that, you know, the courts uh, understand the implications of accepting the arguments that the companies are making here. That, you know, if you accept those arguments, you're not just ruling out the Florida and Texas laws, you're ruling out, you know, any other conceivable legislation that legislatures might come up with in the future. Great. Well, Jamil, this has been uh, really illuminating. Thank you for coming on, Decoder. Thank you. Happy to do it. Thanks again to Jamil for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening to this special Thursday Decoder experiment. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, we'd love your feedback on this. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can tweet at me. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like it, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.